This episode of American Hauntings Podcast is brought to you by Best Western Premier Hotel in Alton, Illinois. The Best Western Premier is the only full-service, award-winning hotel in Alton that can accommodate business travelers, long-term stay guests, leisure travels, business meetings, conventions, wedding receptions, and conferences like the Haunted America Conference. Accommodations include a pool, high-speed internet, restaurant, and bar, and it's located just 25 minutes from downtown St. Louis and Bush Stadium. Book your room today at bwpremieralton.com. That's B-W-P-R-E-M-I-E-R-A-L-T-O-N.com. Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest in the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So for now, put the axe back in the barn, lock the doors, and get ready for the next chapter of Murdered in Their Beds. The last day of J.B. Moore's life was a Sunday. After milking the cows and doing some chores, he had breakfast and then walked downtown. Although the post office was not open on Sundays, the lobby was, and he retrieved his late mail from Saturday evening. J.B. then went to his store, exchanging greetings along the way with several people on the street. And after reading the mail and doing a little bookwork, he returned home. The Moores had purchased their small two-story frame house in Villisca in 1903. Although its address was not far from the home of banker, politician, and J.B.'s former boss, Frank Jones's home, the two houses were nothing alike. The Moore house had been built in 1868 and had no indoor bathroom or electricity. It was a happy home, but it was a tight fit for a family of six. The downstairs consisted of a kitchen with a small pantry, a parlor, and one small bedroom where Catherine slept and which Sarah used for sewing. Upstairs were two bedrooms and an unfinished attic that was used for storage. Boyd, Herman, and Paul shared the larger upstairs bedroom on the south side of the house, and J.B. and Sarah used the low-ceiling, cramped room at the top of the stairs. It was in that attic storage room, accessible through a small door, where some believed the murderer hid and waited for his victims to go to sleep that night. The Moors were regular attendees at the First Presbyterian Church, a few blocks west of their home. It was a short walk for Sunday services, and at Sunday school that morning, Catherine met two of her friends, sisters Lena and Ina Stillinger, aged 11 and 8. They were the daughters of Joe and Sarah Stillinger, who lived on a farm about two miles south of town. Joseph Stillinger, the father of the two girls, had come to Villisca when he was 14 years old. 
His father died during the Civil War, and his mother settled a few miles north of Villisca on land that was given to her as the widow of a soldier. Joe's brother George bought another farm nearby. When Joe married Sarah Hastings, he built a large home across the creek from his mother and brother and did so well with his farm that he eventually bought out his brother's land and incorporated it into what came to be known as Dottie Hollow Farm. He raised sheep and Angus cattle that had been imported from Scotland, operated a seed corn business, and was involved in a small coal distribution company. Sillinger had become an expert in horticulture, and the farm boasted several fruit and nut orchards, which had become famous all over the state. He often traveled to speak to farmers under the sponsorship of Iowa State College and appeared before the state legislature several times. But he was not exactly what you'd call a well-liked man. People respected him, but they didn't like him. He labored from farm to dusk, working hard on behalf of state farmers and ran a professional farm, but he had no friends. He did little but work. He never socialized and refused to attend church, which was met with great disapproval by the God-fearing folks in town. Being a sociable churchgoer counted for a great deal in Villisca. Joe Stillinger was neither of those things, which soon made him a suspect in the murders. On Sunday, June 9th, Joe refused to take his daughters to church and quarreled with his wife when she let them walk into town. But Ina and Lena badly wanted to be there for the Children's Day program that evening. The program wouldn't end until after dark, and since Joe had no intention of picking the girls up, arrangements were made for them to stay the night with their grandmother who lived in town. The Children's Day program started at 8 p.m. The Sunday school classes had been practicing for weeks. The Stillinger girls had dinner with their grandmother and played all afternoon. They were supposed to return to her house that evening to spend the night, but after playing with Catherine more that day, Lena and Ina thought it would be more fun to stay with Catherine. Sarah Moore promised that she would call the Stillingers and make sure that it was all right for them to stay. Well, as we know, they did. It was an innocent choice that placed Lena and Ina Stillinger in the Moore house that on that same Sunday, June 9th, Frank Jones, like J.B. Moore, had gone to the post office and spent some time at his store. He wrote and received a lot of letters that summer, most of them connected to his Senate campaign. He was not well known outside of the immediate area, but he did know a number of implement dealers and bankers in places like Mills County, and he knew that he could count on them for their support. That morning, he sent several letters to ask not only for their votes, but for their assistance in arranging speaking engagements in their towns. Frank's daughter, Letha, was living with her parents that summer. She would not resume teaching until the fall, so she planned to visit with friends, help her mother with the house and garden, and catch up on her reading. Albert, Frank's son, was in his second year of marriage in 1912. His wife, Dona, was considered to be one of the area's most beautiful women. Dona had an oval face with classic features and lively brown eyes. Her fashionable hairstyle, spirited personality, and her shapely figure made her the epitome of the era's standard of young female perfection, the Gibson girl, popularized by the drawings of Charles Dana Gibson. She was pretty, but not so likable. Small town gossip is like no other gossip in the world, and the Jones family was the frequent subject of much of it. Many in town suspected that the dark-haired beauty had married the dull and portly Albert for his family's money. Albert was not particularly ambitious or intelligent. Frank had tried his best to impart as much of his wisdom on his son as possible, but it would be kind to say that it, well, just didn't stick. 
When he was young, he announced grand plans of taking over his father's business someday, but it had become clear that he had no interest in actually doing so. Frank either worked too hard because he didn't choose to slow down, or he had to keep working hard because handling the reins of his company over to his dullard son would surely mean the end of it. Well, when Albert and Dona met, he was the son of a wealthy businessman and heir to a growing fortune. Dona was teaching school at the time, and according to rumor, the family that she'd boarded with was upset by her, quote, scandalous behavior. It was said that she and Albert often went off together for the night, something that was considered taboo for unmarried people at the time. Gossip had it that her scandalous behavior continued after her marriage, but not with her husband. On Saturday, June 8th, Albert and Dona had taken the train to Clarenda, Iowa to spend the night with some friends. They returned on Sunday evening at about 6 p.m. Their home was the first one north of the alley behind the Moore house. While Albert was outside that evening, he ran into J.B. Moore. The two men met in the alley and part of their conversation was overheard by three local boys. One of them was Lawrence Gridley, a 17-year-old farm boy who had just come into town and was putting his buggy into a barn owned by a relative who lived next door to Albert. The conversation would later be recalled for the authorities and they'd find it very interesting. Around 7 p.m. that night, while J.B. was still in conversation with Albert Jones, Sarah Moore called to her husband from their yard and asked him to come home and get ready to leave for the church program. He walked to the house and before changing clothes, telephoned the Stillinger farm and asked if it was all right for the girls to spend the night with them. A sister, Blanche, answered and told J.B. that her parents were outside. Well, J.B. explained that the streetlights were not working in town and Ina and Lena didn't want to walk to their grandmother's house in the dark. They were welcome to stay with the Moors, he told her. Blanche said that she was sure her parents wouldn't mind and that she would tell them where the girls were. At the Presbyterian Church, Reverend Wesley J. Ewing began the Children's Day program promptly at 8 p.m. After a prayer and a few opening remarks, the program was turned over to Sarah Moore. She introduced the Sunday school teachers who in turn presented their classes. The children sang, they recited scriptures, and put on short skits based on Bible stories. The rehearsals had all paid off. The children had a wonderful time. Seated in the back of the church was a minister that few of the congregation knew. His name was Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, and he had traveled from his home in Macedonia, Iowa, on Saturday to preach at two country churches in the area. He had then been brought to Villisca, where he watched the program and planned to spend the night with Reverend Ewing and his wife, Nora, before returning home by train early Monday morning. Across the street in the Methodist church, Frank Jones was seated in the back row, which was unusual for him. Normally, the Jones family sat up front. Jones had brought a raincoat with him to church. The humid air had turned the sky dark and rain threatened. Maud and Letha Jones had left for church a few minutes before Frank had. Their evening stroll took them past the home of Albert and Dona. Like many others in town on that warm night, Albert and Dona were sitting on the front porch. So Maud and Letha stopped for a moment to visit. Lita asked if they were coming to church. They were not. Both said they were tired from the long weekend and planned to go to bed early. It was not what you'd call a typical Sunday evening service at the Methodist Church, an outdoor traveling revival meeting run by a boisterous sect known as the Holy Rollers was being held in town that week. Because of the threat of rain, the Methodists had offered them the use of their building. There was a good crowd on hand, including the Holy Rollers. 
Methodists who usually came to church on Sunday evening and probably a few who just showed up out of curiosity. The Holy Rollers were a Pentecostal type group who went into religious frenzies in which they spoke in tongues, jumped up and down and rolled around in the aisles. No one probably expected anything so outlandish to happen, but you know, they hated to miss it if it did. As it turned out, the service was quite orderly. The only odd incident to occur, and it was barely noticed, came near the end of the evening when Frank Jones got up and walked out without saying a word to anyone. The Children's Day program ended at 9 p.m. and it was nearly 10 before the Moors and their two overnight guests got home. JB, Sarah, their children, and the two Stillinger girls noisily and happily entered the house and closed the door behind them. They didn't bother to lock it. Who locked their doors in such a quiet, peaceful little town? The Ewings and Reverend Kelly left the church and walked across the street to the parsonage. They sat down in the parlor and visited for a few minutes before getting ready for bed. Ewing was bothered by nasal infections. In fact, he later died from surgery complications to remove a nasal polyp. And his wife, Nora, suffered from asthma. On some nights, the only relief they found was to sleep outside in a tent. Reverend Kelly would sleep upstairs in the guest room and the Ewings went out to their tent in the backyard. As we know though, late that night, the peacefulness of the town was shattered, leaving behind eight bloody corpses in a little house along one of Velisca's tree-lined streets. Streets that were darker than normal. Thanks to a squabble between the town council and the company providing electricity to the community, the electric power had been shut down on June 9th. Even though the street lights in town were dim and only located in the downtown area, even that small amount of light they offered was absent. The streets that night were darker than sin, but electricity was quickly restored when the bodies at the Moore House were discovered the next day. However, the crime and the absence of street lighting led to at least one newspaper reporter to refer to June 9th as, quote, the darkest night in Velisca's history. And it was, certainly in more ways than one. About two weeks after the brutal murders in Colorado, death called next in the small town of Monmouth, Illinois, a quiet railroad and farming community in the northwest part of the state. The town had been established in 1831, and its name was literally drawn out of a hat. Horror came to town during the early morning hours of October 1st, 1911, when the transient butcher entered the home of the Dawson family and murdered them in their beds. Their skulls were crushed, their bodies covered with bloody sheets, and an eerie link was left behind that seemingly connected the murders to the Burnham and Wayne killings in Colorado Springs. This was the only time along the Axeman's trail that someone else was arrested and convicted for his crimes. The arrest turned out to be a miscarriage of justice, but the Dawsons were just as dead as the Axeman's other victims. William Dawson lived in his home located at 1008 South 1st Street in Monmouth with his wife Charity and his three daughters, only one of whom, Georgia, was at home on the night of October 1st. Their small five-room cottage was located in what was then known as the Colored District of Town, a section of rundown older homes near the railroad tracks that were owned predominantly by African Americans. The Dawsons didn't have much money. 
William was a former horse thief who had spent time in the penitentiary. He changed his ways after prison, though, and had become the trusted custodian at the First United Presbyterian Church, still located next door to the house today. He was well-liked in town and by parishioners at the church, and after his death would be described as honest and hardworking. So when he didn't show up to unlock the church on Sunday morning, Reverend J.C. Green knew something must be wrong. William had always been reliable. Reverend Green assumed that he must be sick and called the Dawson house on the telephone, but no one answered. When the congregation began to arrive at the church, Reverend Green asked two men he knew well to go over and check on William. They knocked on the Dawson's front door a few times, but no one answered. The door was locked. They decided to go around and try the kitchen door. As they walked next to the house, they noticed how strangely dark it seemed. The windows were all closed and the curtains were pulled tight. Both men knew the family and thought it seemed strange for the house to be so quiet. William and Charity had been living in Monmouth for eight years, moving there soon after William had been released from prison. They had 11 children together and three of them lived with them in Monmouth. As it turned out, two of them were away on the night of the murders. One was at the home of a sister in the country and the other spent the night with a girlfriend from church. She was also a member of the choir and was singing at the church next door when the bodies of her parents and younger sister were found. The point is, someone should have been moving around inside the house. No one was. The two men knocked on the kitchen door, but there was still no answer. One of them reached for the knob, expecting this door to also be locked, but the knob turned. He pushed, and the door swung open. The interior of the house was gloomy, silent, and dark. The two men cautiously walked through the kitchen and the living room to the front bedroom where Georgia Dawson slept. They peered into the room and saw Georgia on the bed, but she wasn't sleeping. She was sprawled out with a sheet pulled over her face. That sheet was soaked with blood. Terrified, one of the men stumbled into a bedroom across the hall to find that it was mercifully empty. However, a horrible scene greeted them in the next room. William and Charity Dawson lay in the bed. A sheet had been pulled up over them and it was streaked with red. Blood covered it, spattered the walls, dripped on the floor and had been sprayed across the ceiling by the backswing of an axe or some sort of weapon. The police were immediately called to the scene and a crowd began to gather outside. Rumors and accusations flew. A white family had been murdered in the quote, colored district of town and people were upset and angry. The police were forced to not only control the crowds that gathered outside the house, but to control the rumors that were being spread. It was a volatile, prejudicial time in America. Small towns and cities all over the country had been rocked by race riots and shamed by lynchings. The last thing anyone wanted was for something like that to happen in Monmouth. The police investigation into the murders began right away, but once again, there was little they could do. This was a small town police force with inadequate resources to deal with a crime like this. But even if they'd had more men and more money, there was little forensic science at the time. Mistakes were common, as would certainly be apparent in this murder case. Searches were conducted to the house in the surrounding neighborhood. The Dawson house was located just a few blocks from the railroad tracks. The skulls of all three family members had been crushed with a wide, flat, blunt object like the flat side of an axe. Georgia's body was found in her bedroom. The bodies of her parents were found in the room next to it. There was an empty bedroom across the hall from Georgia's room where her two sisters usually slept. 
All of the bodies in the house had been covered with sheets. The curtains throughout the house had been tightly closed. Nothing was taken from the house. Cash and jewelry were found on the dresser in Charity and William's room in plain sight. Robbery had not been the motive. So what was? Well, the police had no idea. At first, they thought it might have been a revenge murder. One of the first suspects was a former crony of William's. They'd stolen horses together. William testified against him at trial and received a shorter sentence in return. The man had sworn revenge at the time. Uh, this had been many years ago, but he had been paroled from prison the previous year, so perhaps he'd made good on his threats. However, when the police investigated, they discovered the man now lived in Danville, Illinois, 200 miles away from Monmouth. He also had an alibi. He'd been seen in Danville on Saturday night and Sunday morning, including by some police officers. So he couldn't have made the round trip across the state in time to commit the murders. On Monday, bloodhounds were brought in from Macon County, Illinois, to search for the killer's trail. They tracked him along the railroad tracks and close to a pond west of town. Near the water, investigators found a two-foot length of one-inch gas pipe that seemed to have blood and hair on it. Even though it didn't match the wounds on the victims, it was sent to Chicago for analysis anyway. The blood and hair turned out to be human, but of course there was no way to match the DNA on the pipe to any of the Dawsons. Even if there had been, I don't believe it would have matched. The family had been killed with a larger weapon, like a hammer, or of course the blunt side of an axe. This crime matched all of the signatures of the Axeman's other murders, except for one thing. There was no oil lamp found at the scene. At the previous scenes, there had always been a lamp found with its wick turned down and its chimney removed. But apparently, the Axeman used something else to light his way in Monmouth. Several months after the murders, a wire fence was removed at the back of the Dawson property and a pocket flashlight was found where it had apparently been dropped. The flashlight was taken to the police and under examination, it was discovered that the words Colorado Springs have been scratched into the metal of the flashlight's case. Of course, there's no way to know if that flashlight belonged to the Axeman, but it does seem to be an eerie link between the two cities and the two separate murder scenes. Unable to find enemies of William Dawson, the case soon went cold. Well, the official case anyway. Gossip kept things alive. There was talk in town that the Dawsons had been murdered by some of their black neighbors because William had been carrying on with some of their female relatives. There's no indication as to how this story got started. It wasn't true, but it certainly had an effect on the reopened investigation in 1915. Three lawyers waited four years to, quote, crack the case by arresting a black man for the murders. His motive? Well, he didn't need one. He was black. In March 1915, Monmouth Police Chief G.W. Morrison went to St. Louis to gather information on a black man named Lovey Mitchell, who had been working at the Roundhouse for the Monmouth and St. Louis Railroad at the time of the murders. He was arrested and taken to nearby Galesburg, which was believed to have a stronger jail than Monmouth did. Fear was already growing about a lynching. Mitchell's arrest, while carried out by the police chief, was part of an investigation by a local attorney and soon-to-be Monmouth mayor named John Hanley. As part of his campaign for the mayor's office, he decided to reopen the controversial Dawson murder case. With the help of two other local attorneys, he started his own search for the killer. Little information is available about Lovey Mitchell before or after his arrest, other than he was described as a giant, stoop-shouldered man in newspaper accounts. 
one thing we do know for sure is that the case against him was really weak. A former co-worker at the Roundhouse, a man named John O. Knight, who was already serving a prison sentence for burglary and larceny, had reportedly confessed to taking part in the murders with Mitchell. His wife had once worked for Charity Dawson, so the police were able to link him to the family. Knight's wife, Anna Marie, was arrested and charged with being a co-conspirator in the murder. She was sick in bed at the time of her arrest and then was driven to Peoria, barely able to sit up because of her fever. Over the next 11 days, she was repeatedly questioned but maintained her innocence. She'd be glad to tell the same thing to a grand jury, she said. Meanwhile, Loving Mitchell was also being threatened, questioned, and beaten. He was denied a lawyer and was not allowed to speak to reporters. In April 1915, he faced a grand jury. Newspapers, convinced of his guilt, were already planning the coverage of his trial. But reporters turned out to be as shocked as the police when the grand jury decided there was insufficient evidence to take him to trial. All the charges against him were later dismissed and he was released. Well, for two years anyway. You see, his story didn't end there. Two years later, Monmouth officials came after him again. He was arrested and charged once again for the Dawson murders. John Knight, who was still in prison, was brought to Monmouth, and he implicated Mitchell in the murders. But his old pal was the only witness they could find against him. For nearly a year, Mitchell sat in jail while officials tried to find someone to testify against him. He was arraigned in January along with Knight. Both were charged with murder. The case went to trial in February and Knight was found guilty and sentenced to an additional 19 years in prison. His plan to stab his old friend in the back had backfired. His so-called confession had started out as an attempt to shave some time off his earlier sentence and his lies turned out to be his undoing. Loving Mitchell's case was continued until September, but he was released when the state's attorney was unable to find any evidence against him. What happened to him after that is unknown. As for John Knight, he went on to serve a lengthy prison sentence, mostly for a crime he didn't actually do. There was no real evidence against him other than that he had a criminal record, lived in the same neighborhood as the Dawson family, and, well, that he was black. He was eventually released from prison for health reasons in October 1931. He died less than six months later from asthma and a severe lung ailment. This wasn't a good guy, but he didn't deserve to end up with what became a death sentence for a burglary charge. The Axeman had gotten away again, and now he was on his way to Kansas. In our next episode, we'll return to the town of Villisca and go inside the Moore house on the morning after the murders. Be prepared to experience what the people of Villisca discovered on that horrible day. We'll apologize in advance. You may not sleep well on the night you listen to that one. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, let's like speak in tongues. 
Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Always say. All right. Um, yeah. You yeah. You always say that, and then we always deliver medium energy. <laughs> so, what are you gonna do? Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call "Murdered in Their Beds: The True Story of the Midwest Axe Murders of the 1900s." I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Yes, I am here. Lisa is here today also. Yes, we'll, we'll call that out <laughs> immediately so yes. people don't feel weird, so yeah. Lisa doesn't feel weird. I don't think Lisa ever felt weird. I think other people uh, assumed she must be feeling weird because they kept saying, well, we don't know who else is there. Well, now you do. So, and to be just to put it out there, we would just give you a microphone and you could just be on the show, but we only have the two inputs, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know yeah. how to do more. So yeah. That's the only reason Lisa doesn't just have a mic all the time. <laughs> I think they're just afraid of what I might say. Oh uh, well, and that's probably a good idea. Yeah, usually more of me. <laughs> right. Lisa should have the mic, and I should probably not. So, I mean, she she knows what she's talking about, and and then I wouldn't have to deal with your shenanigans. Exactly. But <laughs> Anyway, so episode three, here we are. Oh, it is three. It is three. It took Se me a second season there. three, episode it is. three. Yeah, it's uh, it's been. I don't want to say fun, um, but it's been. It is. It, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's not fun for the people in the stories. Yes. but it's it's fun. It's fun to talk about. Yeah, and it's it, interesting to talk about. I do feel that it's happened. It was so long ago that I feel more comfortable making jokes about it because it's so, <laughs> it's so long ago. You know, chances are he's not still waiting. Yes, oh there, God. because you know there is a st we had a story and I I've written about it before, but it it actually I used to live 
right down the street from a house where an axe murder had taken place, like in the 60s. Okay. Um, which was, you know, not, and I don't mean the 1860s, I mean the 1960s, yeah. but this kid had uh, just had chopped up his whole family. Wow. And they sent him to prison, and we were, I had written about it in a couple of books and, you know, and had talked about it a little bit here and there, and then he got out of prison. Oh, which shit. Which was weird. Yeah, uh, how does that I, happen? I, I mean, I, I never heard from him or anything, but... Right. Um, I did keep on. I did keep track of where he moved to. Um, it was right down the street from my house. But jeez, is this? I mean, a, not where he moved to, but where the murders had taken yeah. place. Yeah, is so. this a Fear the Reaper story, or where would you find this? No, um, it was uh, in. I believe it's in Haunted Decatur. I think. The uh, okay. Last edition of that book, because it was just down the street from where I lived there. Damn. I mean, yeah, so. you think you're safe writing about these murders, because you know what well, are the right, odds they're right. going to get yeah, out of jail? Most of the stuff I write about is older. But that's more not so much that I'm worried about them getting out of jail. Yeah. It's more of a case I'm concerned about. Well, I'm not really concerned. It's just more interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. I I just think the older stuff is more interesting. I think the newest – I mean, I've had a few things here and there in different books, but the – Probably the newest story I've ever written an entire book about was uh, about the Grimes sisters mm-hmm. in Chicago, and you know that was 1957. So I mean, we're talking about still a long time ago. Um, I mean, I've written about some things that are more recent than that, but usually it just doesn't really interest me that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, the newer it gets, I guess I can't make fun of their forensic techniques. You know, if you're talking right. about something from 10 years ago, you know, right? So I don't know. It's um, yeah, thanks, OJ. Just, yeah, more more interest. More interesting to me when it's older. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if you did write about newer stuff like Ghosts Through the Ages. How they've changed, you know? Like, yeah. they're always. Well, pe- and you know, and I get that too. People will ask, well, how come the ghosts are always from the 1800s? Why aren't they from, you know, why aren't they from the 90s, yeah. you know, or something? But they are. I mean, there are those stories. I just don't really write about them mm-hmm. that much. Um, I just, it's just not really in my. In my wheelhouse, I yeah. guess. I mean, I'm, there are people who do write about that stuff. Um, Catherine Ramslin, uh, Mark Nesbitt, who wrote the Ghost of Gettysburg book, he and Catherine have done some books about more recent stuff connected to murders and stuff. So, I mean, there are new ghost stories being generated every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you think about people who've had visitations from family members and stuff, you're not talking about something that happened uh, 80 years ago. You're talking about something that happened you know, last week. Yeah. So there's, there are still plenty of stories. I just don't happen to write about them. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's true though. I don't really, I don't hear about too many modern, you know, quote unquote modern ghosts and things. Uh, it's just always the stories that are a lot older. I guess there's just more time and more yeah, people more talk about it. And yeah. More, just more generations of people who've experienced them rather right. than, you know, some of this, the new stuff you're talking about, maybe one person mm-hmm. it happened to or two. And so it's, harder to i guess verify those stories mm-hmm. i guess i don't know how we got onto this but. it's it's hey, this is we do a podcast so we can go on tangents and I have guess. a platform yeah, well, can guess. you imagine when we, when we get to millennial ghosts oh, it's gonna <laughs> yeah, be right. See? the worst <laughs> it would be the worst oh. they've ruined everything God, so. so hipster ghosts okay uh anyway so you might have heard at the top of the episode um we have an opportunity for people that can sponsor an episode if they like. So if you have some message that you want to get out to our community, uh, you have that opportunity. You can find all that information on our website. Yeah, is this, are you talking about, see, I don't really understand this on, this is on for Cody, but so I'm actually asking a question. Yes, Is this please. for people who have like a business or a tour or, yeah, I think or a company either. or a website or a- anything you want to podcast that's, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I'm better push, push than, their if it's podcast. better than ours, why would they, 
Oh, no, those emails. So. Oh, sorry, I went to the spam filter. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see it. No, I think it's for, for any business um, or group, anything, anything that you have that you want to, um, you know, you think our audience would be interested in. Um, of course, I'm going to filter these, and if I don't like your idea or I'm against you, I'm going to be like, mm, no, sorry, we don't do hate groups here. Uh, but no. Well, yeah, that's but, uh, yeah, if you if you think that our audience would be interested in your company, business idea, whatever, uh, yeah, let us know. We can we can talk about that. We also redid all the Patreon stuff, and we set oh, up yeah. tiers as low as a yeah. dollar. Um, so there's that. Um, and I've recently started tweeting uh, from the American <laughs> Hauntings Podcast uh, Twitter account, and that's uh, Amer Haunts Pod, A-M-E-R-H-A-U-N-T-S-P-O-D. I can only have 15 characters. I, I did what I, what I could. <laughs> um, but that's been a lot of fun, and getting to interact with fans and um, had some fun conversations with them in yeah, messages. Or Mick Garris liked my tweet the other night, when you, and you, you asked for people to post their shows that they oh, yeah. podcasts they listen to, and I posted quite a few on there, and one was his. Um, if you don't know who he is, he's a no idea. film director. Oh, okay. Mick Garris, he did the Masters of Horror series on HBO, but he did The Stand – um, he, the remake of the shining in the nineties, he's done a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and, uh, it's gotta be like one of the nicest guys in the horror industry. He's just one of those, he's got a fun podcast where he brings people on like that have been in horror films or directors or John Landis was on last mm -hmm. week. And, um, and then he does an interview with them for an hour and they just talk about whatever, what influenced them, what got them interested in the movies and stuff. Yeah. And I had put, I put on there that he, it was one I listened to cause I do. And uh, man, he was like the first person to like it. And that's I thought, awesome! Wow, Mick Garris liked my tweet. You know, that's a, so. that's the that's the, that's the cool only, thing about Twitter. The only redeemable thing I don't about know. Twitter. I get a lot of information from it. That's the, a lot of links. I do a lot of links. okay. You get a, I get you, a lot of articles, but it stuff. does take down the barriers where someone like it me does. can reach a director. Yeah, or something, I, yeah. You know? I, I've got a lot of things. Michael Connolly liked this too. I mean, he, that's a big deal. He's one of my favorite authors. Yeah, and uh, like the tweet that I put out about his, and I like his podcast. So I think a lot, and it's all new. It's newer stuff. Mm -hmm. He was a crime reporter before he started writing the the Bosch novels, the Amazon oh, series. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah, the novels, and um, it's a murder book. It's great. It's a great series. I, I like to listen to it. He's got a cool voice. It's fun to listen to. Man, what's it like to have a podcast that's fun to listen I to? I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't know what that's like. No, <laughs> anyway, we went to uh, one of the Evenings with the Axeman events yeah, the other you, night. Yeah, you came. Uh, I came and brought my girlfriend and one of my friends, and he's like scientist guy, very, you know, he, he is a scientist. So I was like, I don't know how he's going to like this, you know, <laughs> how, how it's going to go. Um, but he had a really good time, yeah, and he was like, "Yeah, this stuff's really upsetting." Um, yeah, and yeah. you know, very brutal story. And I was yeah. like, "Yes, yeah." Our evening with the Axeman events that we do is essentially our entire podcast, uh, entire series of the podcast in one evening. Yeah, <laughs> but and so you get yeah you get and with food yeah so you kind of get a you know a slapdash version of everything, but it comes with pictures, so yep. you get to see the things we're talking about. Instead of just hearing about them, but it is fun. We have one in May in Jacksonville. That's not a dinner one, but we do have one at our headquarters in Jacksonville. And then we do have another one August uh, 10th, I believe, in Alton that's a dinner one. So um, it is fun. It was it has been, um, I think, the most fun of the of these dinners that I've done in a while. So mm -hmm. And tonight I'm going to be doing one with uh, Lizzie Borden. Yeah, so, and I've Springs. actually, yeah, I've actually added. We've added several more of those, and they just keep selling out. So, um, that's a good story. It's a, that's one of my favorites. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a good one. 
or that Lizzie Borden Winners is a good story. Yeah, and so. where can people find tickets for these events? Um, they could just go to um, AmericanHauntingsInc.com. So, or AmericanHauntings.net is the easier way to find it. You have so many URLs. I know, stuff. but they all go to the same place. Right, So right. it's just AmericanHauntings.net. So, but yeah, you can find the information there about the conference too, which is coming up in June. Right. So, um, so how are those tickets we are, going? We are, we passed the halfway point. Now we're climbing on toward the two thirds sold out point. Um, we just keep, I keep, just keep telling people, man, if you're going to go, you really need to get signed up. We've yeah. had some of the after hour stuff is now sold out. So, you know, it's a matter of time before we're full on this thing. So. I, you know, I hope that people will come. You know, it's always a great time. We'll be there set up with the podcast. Uh, Cody will have that, that set up during the, the weekend. We've got all kinds of stuff coming. Keep keep watching my Facebook page uh, in the next couple of weeks because a lot of our um, a lot of our speakers and vendors are sending in or doing videos and mm-hmm. things about the conference, and uh, we've been posting a lot of stuff. So it's gonna be a good time. Awesome, yeah, and there's more. There's more evening with stuff too, like the Black Dahlia one, I think. Yeah, coming up in July. Yeah, nice. And there'll be there'll be more in the fall. We'll be doing some other stuff in the fall, but yeah, there's a evening with the Black Dahlia, July thirteenth, uh, which is essentially like our Axeman or Lizzie Borden evenings. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk about the the crime and the suspects and the mystery and the you know all the everything involved with it. Um, so it's those are those are, are a lot of fun. I really have started enjoying doing those this year. So. Okay, before we get started, we have a 10-second ad. Go. 10 seconds, here we go. New Patreon rewards, patreon.com slash American Hauntings. New spooky shirts, AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Sponsor an episode, AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com slash sponsor. Now back to the show. Great. So before we get started, I have a very hard-hitting question I have to ask because I need to understand. When does Axe have an E in it, and when does it not? I don't know. I don't use the E. I think it's interchangeable. I don't use the E. I couldn't figure it out. Um, and I see it. It's spelled different ways. And, and you know, it, I, I've seen newspaper articles that are it's spelled both ways in the article. <laughs> so I, there may be some criteria, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it is. Yeah. I just don't ever use the E. I don't know. I'm probably wrong. There's a very good chance well, <laughs> that I'm wrong. If, but if there are any English yeah. teachers listening yeah. or whatever, you know, yeah. it's, tweet at us. Let me know because yeah. I just couldn't figure it out. And every time I type it out, I go back and I erase it, and, and then I see the little squiggly lines sometime yeah. underneath it, and I'd get self conscious. I mean, I, you know, you know the difference. I know the difference between an axe and a hatchet, but, but I don't know size? what the difference between that. Yeah, I don't know the difference between an axe with an X and an axe with an XE. I don't know. Uh-oh, do Lisa wait. can help. We might have a, a teacher has weighing an in. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure if somebody can still tweet at us and find out if I'm right or wrong, but I think that it's spelled A-X as an American spelling, yeah. and the British spelling or the old-time spelling is A-X-E. So both of them are correct. If I were editing an article, though, that had, it both, had well, both of them in there, that would have been a mistake. Yeah, you got to pick one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pick one and go with it, but I think that's... Yeah, uh, where that came right. from it's like putting that extra u and birds color, and color and, yeah, and, yeah you know favorite and all that kind of stuff so. uh, yeah everybody else's stuff's weird english makes a hundred percent oh i know all it's, the time yeah exactly uh all right so let's dive into this okay we're gonna start out in Villisca. yes so the moors lived close to frank jones the, the home had no indoor bathroom or electricity, which right. was, was, was common, was I guess. pretty common at the that time. time. I mean, it was, you know, the, we're, we've reached an era where, um, and 
you know, there are telephones. Most people had a telephone, not everyone uh, had telephones. A lot of people, most people probably had electric light by then, mm-hmm. uh, but it was still a luxury. You know, indoor plumbing was still a luxury for a lot of people. I mean, these are houses that had been there, so this stuff would have to all be retrofitted. You know, and a lot of times when people put in electricity in those old houses, they just run the lines in and just leave them hanging. Yeah. Because nobody, you didn't really have a concept of how dangerous that stuff was at the time, I don't think, you know. Um, but the Moors had not, did not have electricity and they did, they had water in the house. They did not have the bathroom. There was a pump, a well pump in the kitchen. Uh, but that was it. So. Got it. They had an outhouse out back, which is still there. So wh- I'm wondering, why did Catherine, the daughter, get the downstairs room all to herself? It seems like everybody else is crammed in girl. together. It was also her mom's sewing room, so it wasn't ah. like it was a big – and trust me, it's not a big, luxurious it's bedroom. It's tiny. It's right, because you've, you've been there multiple it's times, right? It's a small right? house. Yeah, it's a small house. Gotcha. And then, okay, so that, that solves that. Catherine, I meant no disrespect. Um, <laughs> so Joseph Stillinger was a farmer who did nothing but work. Didn't really have any friends, yeah, and not not so many people liked him. Yeah. And he refused to attend church, and it seems like he <laughs> really didn't care. So, but this was probably, probably a big deal in a small town yeah, like that, I right? Yeah, I think in a small town when everybody, you know, there were Baptists and Presbyterians, and I'm sure there were a few other things too. But that seemed to be the majority of what for, mm-hmm. um, which was pretty common again out in the area that they were. And and we're talking about very rural Iowa here. And um, I mean, just most people went to church. Mm-hmm. You know, most people. I mean, if you didn't. You were, you know, some lounge about, you know, kind of, it just, it just wasn't, you know, and you stood out again. The other thing you have to remember is a lot of this that I put in about, um, Joe Stillinger and about his personality and things. I did that for a reason because these things will come back in future episodes. Right. These are, you know, it seems like I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that he was unlikable. Um, and I think he probably was, but I needed to make a point, mm-hmm. and I needed people to remember that later. Right. Because we'll talk about that in the next episode, back I later. believe. Um, yeah, they'll come back more later. Yeah. Right, right. So and definitely a lot more later on. Yeah. So the, the Stillingers and the Moors and their people really – factions came about in the town, mm-hmm. you know, um, as things progressed. Right. Throughout the summer and the next few summers. So they're like that, like they're like the Hatfields and the McCoys kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, not quite or? that bad, but it was pretty bad. Yeah. So okay, so his daughters are supposed to stay the night with their grandmother, but instead they decided to stay with the Moors, and I'm sure this decision just ruined his oh, life and I, Sarah's I think life. It probably, yeah, I think it probably everybody's grandma too. I mean, I'm sure she felt like she should have insisted, or, right? You know, and well, and really, the parents never really gave permission. It was the sister, it was Blanche, that answered the phone, and um, you know, and said, "Oh, I'm sure mom and dad won't care," and they and they wouldn't have under any nor any circumstances. You know, they only cared. I mean, they regretted the decision in hindsight, mm-hmm. obviously. You know, right? So. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. What can you do? But I, I, I was just thinking about that when I was reading. I was like, damn, that. That is that's got to be tough. Uh, so then Frank Jones, and I know we're just going through a lot of people here, mm. but it's it's helping it's okay. me understand yeah, yeah. it, and I think it it'll, it'll all makes well, sense. Well, and that's later. why it all had to be in there. You right, know, it's all it's all part of the puzzle. Right, right. So we're yeah, putting grabbing all these pieces right now, and then we'll put them together later. So Frank Jones had a son uh, named Albert. Albert had a wife, Donna, who was basically very attractive and not well liked. Donna. Donna. Okay. Yeah. Donna. She's very attractive, not well liked. I can relate to this on such a personal <laughs> level. 
Uh, so I, fe- I feel yeah. for her. Okay. Um, so thank you. Um, <laughs> basically, Frank, but Frank wasn't a huge fan of her. Um, and bef- and Albert was also convinced he was going to take over the family business. Well, I somehow. think that's what he started. I think it was just a you know they were they were wealthy for their time and place. Mm-hmm. I mean th- this was I mean he they had it he had a lot of money for a small town in Iowa. Yeah. I mean if he had picked him up and moved him to even Des Moines, you know he would he would have been wealthy but not super wealthy. Frank yeah. Jones he just wasn't. I mean he was wealthy. The wealthiest man in town, for mm-hmm. sure, you know, in the, the Villisca community. And I think, you know, Albert was, uh, again, and I, I made a point about pointing out what people said about him. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he wasn't well-liked any more than and neither was she. Uh, but I think he probably was more well-liked than, than Donna was because she, people saw her as a, you know, as somebody just looking to marry somebody rich. Right. They figured that, you know, he's going to. And and you know and I I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know that that's how she was. This yeah. is what people said about her. There were rumors of yeah, scandalous this is the behavior. Thing, this is, and these things. are the things they said, and um, and it it could have added up to little more than you know she was really good looking and the family was wealthy, so people talked about her. You know um, I don't know how much of the things that she was accused of she ever actually did. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I do think that Albert was a douchebag. Yeah. So I mean that's everything that I've. You know everything I found about him, everything I've been told about him, he was just like the 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 rich guy's son. Mm-hmm. Remind me yeah, of the, the limps he, kind of. Well, he kind of reminded of me of you know his dad was had all this money, it was in banking and real estate. Where are and you going with his this? His son is just this moron who doesn't know when to shut up and has a, no. is a layabout with no real job that just lives off his dad gets and security i'm surprised clearance. he's not frank jr yeah you know? right um, i don't know where you're going with that we can move on yeah, you're not making yeah, any connections but that here. was where i was really that was really popping into my head as i was listening or as i was putting this together this week so yeah i mean i i don't i don't see that at all anyway no i totally do albert and and jb the night of is it the night of the murder that they were witness having the conversation mm-hmm. in the alley well, yeah, it was earlier in the evening before the family went to church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so and then that night at the church, Reverend uh, Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly is that? Yeah, oh, Reverend sure. Kelly. Okay, yeah. Reverend Kelly sat in the back. He was already planning on leaving the next morning on an early train. Right. And we're going to talk about him a lot. We'll talk about him more as time goes on. Um, I just wanted to introduce the character to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of the more interesting people. He's in definitely this story. more. He's definitely interesting, and we'll talk more about him a lot later. Yeah, and when we did the many uh, episodes from now, when I we did well, when we did so. the Axeman um, dinner, you, you like you said, you spelled out kind of the whole thing, right? And you right. you told me and everybody else your theories about him, which are very yeah. interesting, and I'm not going to spoil any of that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I was like, wow, okay, this is so this is where we're going. So strap in, folks, because yeah. it's, it's going to get <laughs> it's going to get fun. Uh, but that that week, the Holy Rollers were in town. Yeah, wasn't that something? Can, yeah, yeah, can you it was, can it's, you talk it about was them? just a it was just a spring off. I mean, to give you just a little bit of history on the whole thing. Yeah, in the early 1900s, um, the Pentecostal, the Charismatic Pentecostals, that movement became a thing. It started in California, I believe, in 1904, and that's you know the speaking in tongues, running around, jumping up and down, rolling around on the floor, you know, the whole thing and being seized by the Holy Spirit yeah. thing. And, th- and they 
started calling these people holy rollers because they literally rolled around on the floor oh, okay. All when right. they were, you know, seized with the Holy Spirit. And so um, they were, this was a traveling, it was, you know, it was summer and it was a traveling um, um, revival show, tent, okay. a tent revival. It was traveling through town, but um, the weather was supposed to be bad. Mm-hmm. And I mean, People were basing this. I mean, there's no weather report on the radio. There were no radios, right, but right. the the sky looked bad, and these guys were all farmers, so they kind of had a you know pretty good idea that they a thunderstorm was coming. This wasn't so, the Doppler. Uh, no, report no, coming. no. So yeah. you know they and this is a really open area of just rolling hills, and mm-hmm. there's just nothing out there. So if a tornado or something comes through, it's it, you could do some damage. Right. Well, anyway, so rather than set their big tent up and have it blow away in the storm. The Methodists, which I thought was really odd, offered the use of their church to the Holy Rollers for the evening. They were being Christ-like. Well, I, they were, but it just seems odd because they're topic, talk about opposite ends of the spectrum, mm-hmm. right? Well, anyway, so they had an extra large crowd at church that night because I think people were showing up. Not only did you have extra people, but I think people were showing up just to see and it's the entertainment, what was going right? to happen, you know, but then nothing did. Yeah. So I'm sure that was disappointing. So Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, they, it's a traveling thing because, I mean, it is a spectacle to oh, sure, watch, sure. watch this stuff. I haven't seen it live ever. Um, don't know how I'd, I would oh, feel I about have. that. Yeah? Yeah. D- w- please. No, no, I <laughs> no? just... I'll, that book is in the works. One okay. Of these days, I'm doing a whole book on okay, okay. American cults. Amer- oh, well, cults, man. I don't know. It seems so different from a cult religion stuff. Um, <laughs> so anyway, they're, do these people, do they do the snake stuff or is that? That is different? an offshoot of, of Pentecostalism. Okay. That is a, and not all Pentecostalism is this. I mean, they're. It's too hard to explain. Too we could do a whole on. podcast of me explaining what each part of right. this was, but um, but the the snake handling is just a little. They still do all these other things mm-hmm. and then add in snakes. So, so weird. Well, I mean, you know, it, they claim that they pick and choose certain Bible verses that mm-hmm. are supposed to provide the basis. You know, that's why the women don't cut their hair and you know they don't wear makeup and they, all right. these things, and and that's all part of it. And then there are verses that talk about speaking in tongues, and then there are verses about how if you're, you know, you know, I guess if you're close enough to God, you can pick up serpents and you can drink poison, and then the serpents won't bite you, and the, yeah. or you won't die from it, and the, yeah, you know, and you can drink poison and not die. But How's unfortunately, that been out yeah, well, them? not always that great because um, you know, usually they will milk the. See, this is a whole different podcast, but <laughs> yeah. you can milk the poison out of a rattlesnake yeah. uh, before you use it in in a service, and then if it bites you, it, mm-hmm. there's nothing to come out. So, right, it's it's a it's like like a lot of religion. It's all smoke and mirrors, yes. and it's it's putting on a good show, and that's what people come for. They come for entertainment. Yeah, you put so, on a good show, open yeah. your wallet. You know, yeah, it just keeps exactly. going around. Okay, so back back to the story. I know we went on a tangent there deal with it um <laughs> sorry so, no I, I i love it so there was somebody else in the church that night who sat uh towards back and got up at the end left without saying a word to anyone and that was frank jones right uh and i was wondering okay maybe he had enough of i'm just, just big no crowd. i just put that in there because it's something you need to know uh-huh. later uh-huh. so all of these puzzle pieces will eventually fit right but i've got to put them in somewhere so that people will understand i wanted to show where everybody was mm-hmm that would become a part of this whole mess, yep. I needed to show where everybody was that night. Right. 
And where everybody was, this is the, probably the last point on Velisca for right now. Reverend Kelly slept in the Ewing's house. Is yeah, that how you pronounce Ewing's it? House. Ewing's yeah. house. Well, well, in the, their guest like the basketball guy. Um, <laughs> right, right. Because that the family slept in a tent. Yeah. Um, What's going on? Well, I think well they don't have any air conditioning or fans or oh, anything yeah. else. If I don't know if the Ewings had electricity at that time or not, but even if they had, you know, and a fan's only going to move the. The, the problems around that they were having mm-hmm. with their asthma and all this stuff. Right. You know, and so not being able to breathe well, it was easier for them to sleep out in a tent when, you know, you would have a little bit of fresh air rather mm-hmm. than up in a, you know, in the second floor of a, of an old house with bad ventilation, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, so that, so that makes sense. So it's important that he's there again for later, yes. but we just need to know where everybody is. Right. But now we're going to move on from Villisca to a different town in Illinois. Now, for people that uh, – just a little inside baseball here, but I often don't get to hear the recordings of the podcast before. Oh, like, right. It's, it's Monmouth. Monmouth. I okay. knew that's where you were going. And I should just <laughs> ask these things to clarify before, but I just <laughs> want people to know. And you, to be fair, you did send me all these recordings before we've done this, but I just – I haven't had time I know. to go, you, go through you, it. You read them and then, yeah. Yes. No, I understand. There's just there's a lot going on because I realize that when I edit your episodes and th- your monologues and stuff, I'm not actually – obtaining absorbing right, any of that just trying to yeah, yeah. No, i'm just I get it. listening to the interesting swears that you make up um when you mess up <laughs> uh so anyway so this is monmouth yes right okay it's a railroad town in the northwest area of the state it's near galesburg if you know you don't and you don't you're not from the area not, so not help me out. um yeah northwest not far north we're not talking about rockford here we're talking about further south than that okay closer to the quad cities okay um that area right there not you know northwest i think galena is northwest mm-hmm. this is northwest central illinois how's that northwest central illinois yeah, in the middle of the state but to the northwest part of it okay is so it like no it's further north i mean it's galesburg um is up there i know i said that already um yeah there's just i mean you're getting when you're on you're on your way to like Davenport and Rock Island and all that stuff. It's uh-huh. it's that general direction. Okay, so. so I mean, as someone who's driven to Iowa a bunch, I'm yeah. guessing that's why you would know these things. Um, I'll put the GPS coordinates in the show notes if anybody's really interested. <laughs> well, say you could find it on a map. It's not a very big town though. Yeah, and apparently yeah. the name was literally drawn out of a hat. Yeah, and that wasn't the what that wasn't actually the name that was drawn out of the hat. Something what, weirder was. What what was it? I, you, you I got it somewhere, but it it that was getting too off track. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was something weird like. Abawag or something. I'm not kidding. It was something very weird. And they went, oh, no, that's not going to work. And so pulled something else, and it turned out to be Monmouth. Yeah, yeah I guess <laughs> names and how cool they sound change with the times, yeah. I guess. But anyway, uh, so this is October 1st, 1911, and Billy the Axeman visits this town, uh, visits the Dawson family. It's William, Charity, and their three three daughters live there, but only one of them was home on that right. particular night. And they had 11 children in yeah. total. That is insane. Yeah, well, it's common for not them. uncommon for the time, you know. So I guess with, when you have a f- like farms and stuff, you need people to work. Well, yeah, need you need field hands, you know. So you put together your own baseball team, right? You know, <laughs> right, and they lived in the colored district, and again, this is of the times. Uh, Nineteen eleven. Yeah. yeah, it was a rough. It was an older part of town, uh, a little more impoverished part of town near mm-hmm. the railroad tracks, right. of course, because. That's where you normally find these impoverished communities mm-hmm. or around along the tracks. Right. And, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. He'd been in prison. 
uh, for horse thief, yeah. th- horse theft, but it had been a number quite a few years ago. Um, and since he'd been out, he'd reformed mm-hmm. and was now working at the church, which is still next door. Last time I was there, this house was still standing. Really? It was abandoned. Uh, but the church is still there. So this would be one of the very few, then, of that yeah, are very still, few. still around. Yeah, very few. So I, I'd always heard— And of, it may be gone now, but the last time I was there, it was still there. Yeah, I'd always heard—I don't know if it's true now, but I heard that they would, like— Hang you for stealing horses? Is that was that really well, that, a thing? Well, that was a little older than that. I think that was okay. pre this. I mean, at, at one time out west, they hung horse thieves mm-hmm. because um, you were stealing someone's livelihood. Yeah. And, you know, and if you stole it from the right place in time, you'd be you might be you might die without your horse. You know, um, but so I mean, there is some truth to that, but I don't think it was an epic. In every got single it. case, got yeah. it. Okay, right. well, see, I, I'm lear- I learned. I learned too. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like you said he changed his ways. He was a custodian at First United Presbyterian Church. Um, at first, I was I was thinking, you know, is maybe the church stuff like a common thread? But as you said, probably everybody went to church in most of these small towns. Yeah. Well, I think I think it was much more common then mm-hmm. back then for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. And so we have the typical um, Billy the Axe Man pattern. We have this close to the railroad. Skulls are crushed in. Sheets pulled up over the body. Curtains pulled. No robbery. But there's no oil lamp this right, time, right. which is different, I guess. Um, well, they may not have had one. The house right. could have had electricity. And so, you know, that was a situation. And I didn't, I've never found anything one way or the other that said there was or wasn't electricity. Mm-hmm. But if they did, they might not have had any oil lamps. Right, right. Okay. And then Because he always used whatever was there. Yeah. I mean, he used their axe. He, you know, these were their lamps. He didn't bring them with him. And I think that the whole thing with the lamp is, and that's, and I know what you're getting mm-hmm. ready to say, but yeah. I think the whole thing with the lamp is he would take off the reflector, which makes the light, when you have that chimney, mm-hmm. and not everyone understands that, I don't think. I, somebody asked me what I meant by chimney. Uh, they didn't understand what I meant yeah. because it's not that common no, that's anymore. That's a fair question. But if yeah. you've seen an oil lamp, you know um, they're usually a glass base. They fill with oil, has a wick that comes down, and then you turn it up, you light it, and you turn it down, and then it has a glass piece that fits over the top that mm-hmm. keeps anyone from touching the flame. It, it directs the, the the soot that comes off the wick. Um, but that also makes it brighter, mm-hmm. you know, the, than it would be if you just had a flame burning like from a candle. Yeah. And so once you take that glass chimney off and and move set it aside, you can control how much light comes out by turning the wick as low as you want to still keep it okay. burning. So that's once your eyes have adjusted to the darkness, that's enough light to see by, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a light that would a wake up another person who was there sleeping. And also, it wouldn't be seen from outside, but didn't matter because he'd already covered all the windows. Right. Uh, but that way, he could move around in these houses at night, keeping the light very low, the windows covered, and there was less chance of discovery that way. Because if you if you looked over at your neighbor's house at 2 o'clock in the morning, especially in little towns where everybody knew each other, and there's nothing to do at night, it's not like you're up watching TV, mm-hmm. and you're seeing a light moving around, you're either A, thinking that there's something wrong, with your neighbors, that they maybe they're sick or there's something going on in the house, or you're thinking someone has broken into their house. And so he has now covered the windows and has turned the light down as low as possible. Now, I'm not saying this flashlight was his. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying the possibility is there. If somebody had gone over the back fence, they could have dropped it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't. And it wasn't found till sometime later. 
it wasn't found on the you know the day the morning after the murders or anything but somebody found a flashlight it like where it had fallen somewhere in the backyard mm-hmm. and could it have been his well i mean it did it had it said colorado springs on it which right. is the only thing that seems to connect it but it's it's interesting to think about yeah that maybe this in this situation there was no oil, oil lamp but he had this flashlight and use the flashlight, maybe covered up part of the lens so that you didn't put off much light. It was enough light for him to get around in a strange property. And then when he was leaving, he dropped it. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Uh, yeah. Nobody knows. And But it's a maybe kind of thing that's there. Right. I mean, yeah, the fact that it has Colorado Springs on it is the most interesting and, like, alarming thing. And if, you know, you didn't find an oil lamp there, this is a logical thing to think um so yeah so that is what i was going to say and the only reason i do know actually what an oil lamp is is uh charlie brockus the Mm. guy does the music for us Uh, his parents had two of them in their basement i remember seeing them when i was younger and i was like what the hell is (laughs) this and you know playing with it and turning the wick down and everything and thinking that like the chimney was this shaped glass that kind of got skinnier and and wider and the little prongs that would kind of hold it in and i was like this seems dangerous yeah like, well, it, it just seems like well, a bomb. Well, not everything. You know, back in those days, people were smart enough. They didn't need warning labels on everything. And so I'm not supposed to drink this stuff yeah, in the right, bottom exactly. of, the, of this? And so, you know, you didn't have to know all those kinds of things. But, I mean, I knew because I've just been around the antiques, you know, most of right. my life. And, you know, I never – I'm not old enough that we ever had to use those. Wait. Um, so, so, right, right. We never had to use I'm going to make the joke. You know, but – Okay, well, that – good to know. We I'm, did it by choice. No, <laughs> <laughs> we just thought it, you were a hipster before. It was, exactly. a, it was cool. Yeah, it was it was cool when I did it. So, so. police uh, eventually they found a gas pipe with blood and human hair on it. But you don't believe that this is the murder weapon. And also, if not, what the hell is going on in this town? That well, yeah, but they found it all along the railroad tracks. Okay, well, I don't care I where mean, they yeah, found well, it. Why you've is got nine hundred hobos passing through town on a daily basis back in those. But there's days. blood and human Anybody hair. Anybody could have hit somebody else. Uh, you know, so is this like a normal thing for well, them? Well, I mean, just... it, it could be. Yeah, I mean it could be so you just never know but i mean the the pipe while interesting obviously didn't match the 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 wounds on the bodies right you know so okay so that that was from a it's like no no no, that's an unrelated murder yeah well yeah right but it got reported because they picked it up right so okay and so this was the only time that someone else was arrested and convicted for the crimes of billy billy the axe man um, and of course, because the time in an area, um, it was a black guy, yeah. former coworker was already in jail. Um, John Knight. Yeah. Well, it was, yep. it wasn't necessarily the area. I'm not going to say anything about Monmouth. I'm just going to say it was the climate of the country. Okay. Yeah. And I want to say at the time, but let's be honest, <laughs> not much you know, I think changed. I've made a good point here that, you know, not much has changed, unfortunately. Yep. And he made a handy suspect, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even though he had the only the only evidence against him was his buddy who was already in prison trying to get a lighter sentence. Right. Who you know j- who they knew about the the murders because they worked there in town. Mm-hmm. And John Knight's wife had worked for ch- had done some work some housework for Charity Dawson, so they knew about the murders. Mm-hmm. And so he used this to try to get time off his sentence, but it backfired on. Right. Him. So so John Knight's uh, already in jail, and he's a form- he, he accuses a former coworker, Levy Mitchell, and says that he confessed to him about these murders. So 
Mitchell is is tried, but also his sick wife was also brought in as a co-conspirator. Well, yeah, that was Knight's wife. They drug, oh, I'm sorry. drug her. Oh, yeah. Knight's wife. Okay. Yeah, who that, had nothing to do with it at all. She was the one who had worked for the Dawkins. Got it. Okay. So, yes, yeah, a lot of moving pieces here, a lot yeah, of people. Um, so the grand jury eventually drops the charges for two years, and then they tried him again, and yeah. John Knight. Yeah. And this is when you say it backfired because Knight is then sentenced to 19 years. Yeah. And they let Mitchell go. And yeah. it, for health, it eventually released for health reasons, right? Well, that was or Knight. That, that's Knight. Okay. No. So they just let Mitchell go. Yeah. Mitchell was, they could, they kept him in jail for over a year right. trying to pin something on him and couldn't find anybody who would testify against him. I mean, and so finally they let him go. Right. Uh, so, but, you know, they still had Knight. And so since he had confessed to his part in it as, trying to get out of jail right, right. they burned him on it and he spent years in prison after that but um, then they released he was released, him yeah for health reasons and, and just died. died soon after so got it okay so that's just very unfortunate all over the place um and honestly the the x-man had already made his way no, to kansas right long, or, long gone yeah then. well we don't know what by this time who knows what had happened to right him. this was years later when these guys finally went to trial but he was long gone and <laughs> wrong people were lives were just ruined because of that and, and because of john knight honestly yeah uh so lots lots of moving parts lots of complicated things going on and still no one's really being held accountable for these crimes and that's where we're going to pick up yep in yep. two weeks it's now time for our ghostwriters segment if you have a question about the world of the macabre email us at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com our first email comes to us from cheryl and I'm only putting this in here because Cheryl said she loves the announcements at the end and the whole <laughs> outro. Um, thank you, Cheryl. Really Whatever. appreciate it. No um, one, no one glad that she's on my side. Uh, next email, Corey wrote in. He said he loves the podcast, and he shared uh, his top ten horror movies with us. And uh, thank you, Corey. I'm not going to go through all of them, but he had some interesting things on there. There was John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that is a great one. Which is great. great. But, well, and, and that might have fit. We didn't do a greatest of all time we just did we were limited by the right. time right so but that we'll pick that up when we finally do an episode about the 80s that's true well that because the howling's yeah. on here as yeah. well yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. i think that would fit right in yeah. um so thanks Corey. stay tuned we'll we'll do some more decade focused uh shows in the future and then michelle emailed in and said she was uh, supposed to be a dead of winter and had crazy stories to share with us, including a double murder. I met so many people and heard so many stories. I don't know <laughs> if we got to meet you. So <laughs> let me know if, you, if we did, if we didn't, if you still want to tell me the story. Um, Cause I, you know, I, I appreciate any, any crazy story that anybody wants to share with us. Okay. Well, I guess we should wrap this up. And uh, with that, I want to say again to everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for interacting with the podcast because we have found that more and more of you are leaving reviews and more and more of you we're hearing from, whether it be, you know, via email or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, we are hearing from a lot more of you and we, we always really appreciate it. Um, again, the guy with the glowing review with the one star mm -hmm. brother, please fix that. Um, other than that, thank you. Um, thank you everybody for leaving us the reviews on iTunes and everywhere else. So thanks. And, uh, Turn it over to Cody. All right. For the waste of time. Anyway, this episode of American Hauntings Podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the Didn't truth to reveal more about America's We've most haunted places, that. strange tales, and unexplained events. 
American Hauntings is, is no a bi-weekly podcast. You, know that, right? you can check out our new episodes on your so. morning commute every other Tuesday to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and That's hauntings. if we can get Cody to put it up on time. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, or your other on favorite what? podcast Cast apps. Box? It's is a, that it, a thing? Hey, I did some research. Just, okay. just let me go all with right, this. By right, searching right. for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. Listen on CastBox. Yeah, me too. I don't know what that is. Where we also have links to some of Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love this show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance. Oh, sorry. That was my head hitting the microphone. Yeah, have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get Yammering. bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, oh, be man, sure to pass them along. I had a joke. I forgot. <laughs> You're to tell it to you. No, no, really, I did. I forgot. Do you want to? I forgot. This is yeah, legit. The last up. sentence really. of the show. I gotta look it up real quick because it's uh, uh, it's very funny, and I will uh, I'll just credit. R- I'll just riff for. A I'm gonna minutes. credit. I'm I'm talking. I'm gonna. <laughs> is it weird when? So, is it rude when someone's talking really when you're funny. trying to talk? That's such a weird. No, I can't. God. <laughs> well, now I can't find oh, it. Oh, is it hard for you to Caleb think right now? It to me. Oh, the now pressure's on. Oh wait, here we go. It's really funny. Uh-huh. It says, it's a dad joke. Yep. But it, it, it said, as I get older and remember all the people I've lost along the way, I think to myself, maybe a career as a tour guide was not the right choice. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Until next time, <laughs> goodbye, so long, and see you later. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Yeah, <laughs> she don't, sent don't me quit that. your day job.